I know it's our habit here every week to say the word of the Lord, and it's incumbent upon you to say thanks be to God, and it occurs to me periodically that that uh, is maybe harder to say than at other times. Um, this, is a, uh, this is a challenging word for us this morning, so let me uh, lead us in prayer, uh, call upon the Lord to be at work in the preaching of this word. Uh, Lord, we thank you for your word, and we stand uh, in the conviction here that all of it is good, that all of it is given for our thriving, that we may know you and your will, and that we may live as you have called us to live in freedom and enjoyment and love for one another, and most of all, in love for you. Uh, so Lord, guide us along as we look at this portion of it, uh, that we would, uh, Lord, we just sang a minute ago, that, that our hearts would be brought to you um, with open hands. Uh, Lord, let that be our posture this morning, that you would uh, work upon our hearts, knowing that uh, you know what, is, what we need. And we, we ask in particular that Christ would be formed in us, uh, that we might be conformed to your will for the glory of your name and for the good of our neighbors. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's, it's commonly thought that the ultimate in musical freedom, in, in, in musical free expression, is improvisation. Uh, you know, that's the, that's the place where if you're a musician, you get to leave the notes on the page. Uh, you get to go wherever your heart may take you, and, you know, whatever, that, whatever you decide that may be. And uh, recently, I, I read something uh, by probably the greatest jazz improviser of all times, the jazz trumpeter Miles Davis, who uh, had a definition for improvisation. And when I heard this, I, you know, I haven't stopped thinking about it since, and I think it's applicable this morning. His definition of Im improvisation is the freedom and space to hear things. It's interesting, isn't it? Think about that. The freedom and space to hear things. It's really, I think, counterintuitive because he's saying, you know, at precisely that place in the performance of music where I am ostensibly indulging in the ultimate in freedom, enjoying that fully, it, that is not the place where I turn away from the whole world of relationships within, within which music is played, right? And it's key and it's rhythm and working with other musicians and performing for an audience, but in some way, that's the place where I turn more intently toward those things, where I attend to them, where I really hear what's not just inside me, but what's around me. I think what he's saying there is that real freedom requires a new and deeper recognition of the responsibilities and particularly the relationships that come with it, right? Now, we're looking at a passage this morning that touches on, addresses a whole range of relationships. You heard me read this passage. I mean, there are wives and fathers and husbands and, and, and bosses and employees and, and children and, you know, everybody. But what we're really looking at in, in that entire matrix of all those different relationships, what we're focusing on here this morning fundamentally is one relationship, a, a singular relationship which touches and shapes every other relationship, and that's the relationship one may have with Jesus. And in particular, we're focusing on the freedom that comes 
when, he, when we are given the grace of being in relationship with him and the space to hear him. You know, that's our hope this morning. That's the hope in preaching, that we would be able to have the freedom and the space to hear him speak into our lives. Now, the first thing to say about relationships is that if you're a human being, you're in relationship. Um, you can't not be in relationship any more than a fish cannot be wet. Uh, you can even be someone who has decided, I'm going to burn every bridge, I'm going to cut every tie, I'm going to, you know, go off and live in isolation in a, in a desert earth ship somewhere. But the reality is you're still in relationship. You, you know, because in some way you remain a part of someone's life. And, you know, in that case, maybe a painful part. But it's, it's not that the relationship just ceases to exist, Right? And here's the thing, to be in relationship with anyone, whether it's an acquaintance or a friend or a family member or a spouse or a sexual partner or a colleague or a cashier, means that you are not free. Not, not free in the Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, I'm free to do what I want any old time sense of freedom, right? But by virtue of that relationship, you were bound to other people in such a way that necessitates living up to whatever role, whatever responsibilities, and whatever obligations come along with that relationship. Ours is a life of, of, of obligation in relationship, of responsibilities, of roles. So the idea that any of us are utterly free of those obligations that come with relationship, I want to say is not only naive, it's, it's actually quite dangerous. Because your existence and mine was born of relationship, we currently live because of relationship. Our lives are sustained by relationship. And most of all, we were made for relationship, for, for the enjoyment of a relationship with God and with one another. Now, the passage we've just read this morning is what scholars refer to as a household code, um, which is not just a Colossian thing, it is a cultural thing, it's a universal thing. Uh, every culture has a household code, and by that I mean has some kind of normative understanding of the various roles and responsibilities believed to be necessary for the ordering of a home and the ordering of society, right? We all have that, whether it was formulated by Aristotle or Oprah. We live with certain expectations of how things are are to function. And just to illustrate this, let me tell you about a time I got caught in the middle of a code clash at a Thanksgiving table. Um, I was invited over to someone's home. Uh, I was a guest in this home, and I was seated across from some other guests who had been, who'd been invited to this Thanksgiving dinner who happened to be from Africa. And they were wearing their this really beautiful traditional dress of their home country, which I, if memory serves, was Tanzania. And, a, and next to me was a, uh, a young female American college student. And I guess in an effort to make conversation, at some point this, the woman seated next to me asked the African man seated across from me about the role of women in his country. And without batting an eye, he basically said, oh, the women. Well, the women, they have the children, and they prepare the meals, and they keep the home. And the young woman was very quick to reply to this and express her opinion that she felt this was re retrograde, 
and offensive and oppressive to women. And he was kind of surprised that she was so taken aback by it. And, and I began to inquire if there might be any more cranberry sauce and wanted to know, you know, when the game might be starting later on that day, right? But, but here's why I tell that story. And, here, you know, here's the thing. As, as I recounted that story to you, even before I was done with it, you knew where, you knew the clash was coming. I, I heard it. I heard a couple of giggles. I, heard a, I think I heard a groan. Why is that? It's because we have a code. Uh, we, we live by a code. We knew it was about to clash. We all carry around cultural assumptions and expectations for how we are to live in relationship with one another and society at large. All right? What makes for a good home? What makes for a good society? That gives us a certain perspective. It also furnishes us with certain cultural blinders that we would do well to be aware of. So, you know, like the young American woman and the African man, and like us, the Colossians had a code. And, and their code was built on a singular, indisputable, unshakable foundation, and that is that the male head of the household is absolutely sovereign, the linchpin to keeping all of society and the home together. Now, again, we've just read this passage about a whole matrix of relationships in which husbands and fathers and wives and mothers and children and masters and servants are all addressed. But again, critical to understanding this and critical to setting the right bearing as we get into this is understanding that this is fundamentally a passage about one's relationship with Jesus as Lord. Jesus is Lord. Before it's about anything else, this is about the Lordship of Christ. Jesus is referred to here not only six times in just a few verses, but referred to in each of those times as Lord. You might say that's the household code of the Christian. The Lordship of Jesus touching my relationships, transforming my relationships, never disconnected from any of my relationships. I'm always holding on to that as my linchpin, right? And because everything connects to the lordship of Jesus, which is utterly gracious, it makes sense that gratitude frames our passage. I didn't read these verses, but these are the bookends of this particular passage. It begins in verse 17 with what Greg preached on last week, and whatever you do in word and deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And it ends in verse 2, in, in chapter 4, verse 2, with continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful with it in thanksgiving. Which means that what we have in this passage is something like the meat in a gratitude sandwich. Showing us what it looks like to live as those in relationship with Jesus as Lord. To live faithfully in a whole range of relationships, and admittedly, complicated relationships. Very likely broken, bruised relationships, uh, but in light of the lordship of Jesus. So with all that in mind, let's, let's, let's get into this. Paul zeroes in on three sets of relationships. First, the relationship between a husband and a wife. Secondly, the relationship between parents and children. And thirdly, between servants and their masters. Now, right off the bat, what's laid out here, for anyone at that time, they would have read this and seen this as utterly radical 
as countercultural and completely subversive to the cultural norms of the day by virtue of the fact that women and children and slaves are even mentioned in, in, in the code. Again, according to the assumed and unchallenged societal standard of the day, the only person who mattered in the household code was the male head of the household, the sovereign male of the household, whose rights and responsibilities would have been delineated, but everyone else would have been subjected to his sovereignty. They live in the shadow of that. Whatever you want to do with those people, the, the code implies, is up to you. You're sovereign. But here, you know, not only are women, children, and servants figured in to that which is essential in the ordering of the household, but the prevailing concern is their well-being, is that they would be accorded the dignity and worth and responsibility in the Lord that they are owed. It's radical. It's countercultural. It's subversive. And it begins with the relationship between the husband and the wife. The wife is addressed first in saying, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, it is vital to pause here for a second and acknowledge, and I want to say more than acknowledge, lament, how passages like this have been both misinterpreted and misapplied, uh, often with tragic and damaging results. You, you probably know people like this in your life. I've got dear friends, you know, uh, who've been wrecked by the misapplication of this passage, a, dear, a particular friend in, 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 that I have in mind. Uh, passages like this get weaponized to the end that they do unbelievable damage, particularly to women, uh, children, families, uh, certainly churches, entire communities, and, you know, to that, I just want to say, have mercy and Jesus help. Um, but, but it's also critical to say, let's, you know, we can't let misunderstanding of a passage and its misapplication be our definition of it, right? Uh, we can't look, like, at an unhealthy marriage and decide marriage is not for me. That's what marriage is, and I want nothing of it. It's terrible. It's inhumane. Uh, it's harmful. No. In fact, instead, we... We, we look to God's good design for marriage, for what marriage should be, right? And, and this word submit, you know, I think sticks out like a sore thumb. It is very hard to swallow. It is particularly hard to swallow for 20, 21st century Americans. Uh, it, is, it is hard to swallow in the context in which it is employed here. Uh, I was telling someone yesterday, I, I have no doubt that I could stand up here and drop the F-bomb and have uttered a word less offensive to everyone in this room than the word submit. You know, and, and we might even wonder, is it even worthy of discussion? Because I know what submission means. It is oppression. Submission is the thing that makes me susceptible to abuse. Uh, submission is that mechanism by which I relinquish all personal worth and value and identity. And I just want to say to that, it certainly can mean that, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. It completely depends on that to which you are submitting. We are, in fact, encountering the Bible at one of its most countercultural points, which, again, I think necessitates a willingness to understand that we've got a cultural outlook, and with that come some cultural blinders. 
that, that need to be challenged. So what are we to make of this idea of submission? Well, first of all, the Bible dispenses with the idea that anybody, that there's anyone among us who isn't submitting. We're all submitting to something. Uh, we, we are all giving in. We are all giving ourselves over in the hopes that we will be given something good in return. We do that in ways large and small. We, you might even be someone who has given yourself over in heart, mind, soul, and strength to the idea that I will never submit. And guess what you're doing? You're submitting to that idea. The only, again, real question, the fundamental question, getting underneath all of that is, are you submitting to that which gives life or robs it from you? And here's the thing about submission in the Bible. It is a concept that applies not just to subordinates. It doesn't apply just to, you know, just the women and the children and the servants, okay? It applies to everyone. Young people are called to submit to elders, children to parents, everyone to governing authorities, every church member to their church leaders, everyone to the law. Every Christian is called to live in submission to each other out of reverence for Christ. Out of, a, out of an... A, we, we, we're all called to, to, to a life of submission in some way, a life-giving submission. And you know who also wasn't exempted from submission? The Lord Jesus. Out of an abundance of love for his people and love for the Father, he willingly submitted to God's good will, which resulted in honor, which resulted in glory and life for him and his people. Right? And it is his submission that becomes the basis for all Christian submission. You can't understand what the Bible is teaching about submission until you look to, again, that fundamental relationship by which all other relationships are determined, your relationship to the Lordship of Jesus. Because of the grace of Jesus, there's now a kind of submission that doesn't rob us of dignity, that doesn't take worth from us, that doesn't destroy our identity or our status, but in fact makes us rich in all those things. And we see this unfold in our passage as men are called to submit as well, to submit in their role as husbands, to be servant leaders in their marriages under the lordship of Jesus. Paul has been hammering this whole letter, you know, that it's because of your relationship with Jesus that you're no longer subject to the earthly ways. And he identifies some earthly ways here in the kingdom of the world, right? What's an earthly way of being a husband? To be domineering to be my way or the highway, to be you'd better submit to me or else kind of husband. You know, all of it lacking love, lapsing into harshness, completely disconnected from the love that we've received from Jesus, right? I mean, Greg can tell you, and I certainly can, of marriage counseling situations I've been in where the husband comes and says, you know the problem with this marriage? She won't submit to me. And you go, that's not the problem with your marriage. When you hear that, there's a fundamental misunderstanding of submission in that observation. But that's, again, not how things work in light of the gospel. It's not how things operate in the new creation, where the greatest of all of us is at the very same time the one who is most sacrificial for all of us. Where the one who is Lord of all willingly became for our good servant of all, right? So Jesus completely upends, he completely recalibrates, retools the entire understanding of what authority looks like, what leadership looks like. So that 
The, the result is all the goodness of it remains. Every, every, every good aspect of what beautiful leadership looks like, even as every ounce of the brutality and the cruelty that we sort of assume comes with it as a package deal is drained off, burned away. Around 2005, a man named Randy Posh, a professor at Carnegie Mellon University, was given a fatal cancer diagnosis. And, and as a professor, in response to that terrible news, he developed a lecture in which he decided, I'm going to convey to my, my students that which I think is most important in life. He called it the last lecture. You may have seen it. It went viral. Online, it was viewed by millions. It was eventually published as a book. It's been translated into over 30 languages. Knowing you're about to die has the effect of getting you focused on what matters in life, right? And it certainly did for Jesus. On the night before he died, he not only set out to tell his disciples what was most essential to life in the kingdom of God, he set out to show them what was essential to leadership in the kingdom of God. And he showed them this by washing their feet. That is utterly scandalous, that a rabbi would, would willingly degrade himself in service to his disciples. I mean, we were talking about Maundy Thursday, traditionally you wash feet, and, and we were joking about, like, I don't know if I want to do that. I don't know if I want to see everybody's feet. Get on my knees and wash your feet. But Jesus did that. And as he did that, he didn't stop being their teacher, so he asked them a question. And he, he, he put it to his disciples. He said, do, do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. Not relinquishing the role, not setting aside the leadership. And then he goes on to say, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master. That is what authority looks like in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. That's the lordship of Jesus. That is exactly what Paul is referring to when he talks about a submission that is fitting in the Lord. That, that, that is to say it looks like Jesus. But not, it's not that there's no leadership or that roles are obliterated, but so that even as he remains teacher and Lord, the power and the role is so redirected as to be revolutionized. Radicalized, if we want to put it that way. The brutality associated normally with authority is gone, and yet the authority remains as a beautiful expression of his humility, of, his, of submission, of service, and power utilized to the glory of God and the good of people, not for self. This didn't demean Jesus. It exalted him. So the gospel lived out is not, you know, they go low, we go high. It's we go high by going low. This is why there's such an emphasis on the responsibility of the husband to not only love his wife deeply and tenderly. Go read Ephesians 5 this afternoon, and that, that's more fully exposited there. But the additional command for him to never, ever dominate her, be harsh with her, as can be our Tendency, as can be the earthly ways we lapse into. Kathy Keller explains a new relational dynamic in the gospel well when she says that in marriage, both women and men get to play the Jesus role. 
Jesus in his sacrificial authority, Jesus in his sacrificial submission. She goes on to say, by accepting gender roles and operating within them, we are able to demonstrate to the world concepts that are so counterintuitive as to be completely unintelligible unless they are lived out by men and women in Christian marriages. Imagine that dynamic taking hold in your relationships. You know, what if the energy, what if the polarity was completely reversed so that we are now striving to outdo one another in love and service and submission? What if instead of, you know, why don't you do the dishes? I've done them five nights in a row. It becomes something like, let me do that for you because you do so much for me. And Paul goes on to apply the same principle, the same gospel principle under the lordship of Jesus to parenting. He begins by addressing, first of all, parents. Uh, honoring the role not only of the father, but of the mother. Honoring them as a team who are partners in this together and then calling upon children to obey their parents that is, because that's pleasing in the Lord. And the expectation at this point is that that would be that. Kids, please your parents. Make life easier on them. Quit provoking them. Quit causing them distress. And I, I would be the first to you know, say hallelujah if it ended there. But the wild thing is, is here again, the gospel takes root, fathers are singled out, and they are told not to provoke their children so that they would become discouraged and lose heart. Like, don't do what dads tend to do in parenting to the point of exhaustion, where all motivation to become pleasing is completely lost because you cannot be pleased. And you might be thinking, yeah, but I've got toddlers. I've got teenagers. I've got 20-somethings. I've got 20-somethings that are like toddlers. <laughs> they provoke me all the time. How can I function as a parent? And, and the urging here, again, is look to the lordship of Jesus. Remember and rely upon your relationship with him. How has he treated you? He has been kind toward you patient toward you. He could have made impossible demands to you. He could have lorded over you to the point of exhaustion, but instead he gave you grace by meeting all the demands for you. You see, in relationship with him, there's always a child in your parenting, right? You're never not a child as a Christian. You're, you're a child of God by grace. You've been tended to by a loving father through Jesus. You've been found fully pleasing, fully loved. You've been completely embraced. And, and, and when, you, when you anchor your heart there, new life can spring up in your parenting so that you can actually encourage your children. You can spur them on. You can find patience that you could never produce in and of yourself and long-suffering and prayerfulness. You can delight in overlooking offense. Life can be given to the relationship. You are meeting far, you, you are meeting far more demands than you are meeting out demands on your children. Because that's the life you've been given in Jesus. You're a child and you're a parent. You're a parent. The final relationship here is among the, maybe the most challenging. It's that between a bondservant, or let's call them what we typically call them, maybe in some of your translations, a slave and a master. And, and I don't know about you, I get to this part of the Bible, and, and really all I want to hear from Paul is end slavery. That's all I want to hear. 
pretty clear cut. Now, at this time in history, being a, a servant or a slave was uh, an embedded part of life, uh, unquestioned. It was part of the culture. It was part of the economy. No one batted an eye at it. And, and that means to just simply say free all slaves or to end slavery, you know, would have certainly and summarily been dismissed as nothing more than the rantings of a madman. So Paul does something different. He walks a gospel path here. He doesn't merely sloganeer, nor does he submit to cultural norms. But he engages in ways that are far more reaching and radical and lasting and powerful, and which will historically play out to be the basis of every human liberation movement that's ever gone anywhere. And anchoring everything and everyone, master and servant alike, firmly under the lordship of Jesus. Again, the mere fact that equitable treatment of bond servants is even expressed as a value is radical subversive stuff. Because first off, it indicates that, that masters and slaves were members of the same church. Brothers and sisters in Christ sitting in the same pews, sharing in all of, all of the benefits of walking with the Lord together. But still, you know, why does he say, obey your masters? If anything, that's, that sort of muddies the waters, doesn't it? Well, he doesn't say exactly that. He calls them earthly masters, which, which is to say that their mastering is limited and it is relativized. It, it, it means that earthly masters have a master. It means there's a master of your master. And notice this also, every call to obedience in this passage in verse 22 and 23 and 24 ultimately is a call to obey the Lord. Loyalty ultimately is to him so that there will be occasions in which, as Peter said in Acts 5, we will obey the Lord and not men. All of that is directed in service to the Lord. Sincerity of heart and obedience is to be done as unto the Lord. Hard work is for the Lord, not for men. So that if you find yourself in a position of servitude, Paul says, carry it out knowing that you're, you're serving the Lord. And he's a good master. And he will care for you. But maybe the most striking statement here is the assurance that there is an inheritance for servants who serve as unto the Lord. Greg mentioned last week that these letters would have been read in their entirety to the congregation publicly. And I, I can almost imagine that those who were bond servants in the congregation would have heard this verse and said, wait a second, can you read that one more time? I just want to make sure I'm hearing it correctly. You're saying I have an inheritance? Because slaves didn't get an inheritance. Slaves were an inheritance. You, you only get an inheritance if you're an heir, and you're only an heir if you're a son and a daughter, and you're only a son and a daughter if you have a father in heaven, you're a member of a family. So to say that you're getting an inheritance is to say that in the gospel and because of Jesus, whoever you happen to be, you are a beloved, adored child in the family of God. That's not to say Paul's naive. He's not under any illusions about slavery. Uh, he is acknowledging them as full members of the community and assuring that their service is unto the Lord and reminding them that they're heirs. But none of that necessarily means that all the brutality of their existence is going to evaporate overnight, right? 
I'm sure Paul is aware that many of these people serve harsh masters. And that's why I think in addition to the encouragement about their situation and their status that they have the love of God in full measure, there comes right on the heels of it an assurance about the certainty of the justice of God. In verse 25, that wrongdoers will be paid back for the wrong they've done because there is no partiality. And you know who would have said, can you read that again to me? Those who were masters. Because that is directed at them that they bear a responsibility and that their wrongdoing will be paid back in full measure by a just and loving God for whom there is no partiality. He didn't care if you're a master. You see, the relationship with Jesus relocates you in Jesus so that slaves are exalted and masters are brought low. They're being called to treat their servants justly and fairly, knowing they have a master in heaven. Slaves are assured that they're heirs of their king in heaven, and masters are reminded that they're slaves to that king who have a duty to serve those in service to them. The, the gospel has the effect of changing everything, of reordering everything, of revolutionizing everything, of recalibrating every relationship to align into an utterly new reality, which is the kingdom of God growing in and among us. A number of years ago, I read a short little book by the late church historian Larry Hurtado, and it's, it's one of the great book titles I've come across in a long time, and it's just simply this. The title of the book is, Why on Earth Did Anyone Become a Christian in the First Three Centuries? It's not just a great title for a book, it's a great question, and it's a question that Hurtado argues has gotten far too little attention, not only in the culture, but in the academy, given the fact that for a full three centuries since the death and resurrection of Jesus, there was virtually no incentive to become a Christian, and there were countless incentives not to. There was no state sanction for the faith, no protections, no, no you know, First Amendment uh, religious rights. There was a, a likelihood of persecution. If you were to come to faith in Jesus, you were certain to endure loss of some kind, whether it was of your family, of, of being connected to your community, your career, your livelihood, just respect, maybe your life. And yet, it was during that period, those three centuries, that the church grew to the point where it would come to overturn the Roman Empire itself. And you, and you sort of stand back and go, how in the world did that happen? Given the headwinds, why on earth did anyone become a Christian? And the answer is simply this. Christianity offered more than a new and novel religious life. It offered a new and empowering and dignifying relational life. A new and alternative society was taking root in the world that was so different, so liberating, so honoring to all kinds of people up and down the social hierarchy that whatever loss anyone might have been enduring or contemplating was more than worth it to enter into that kind of life. Because the resurrection is real, because Jesus reigns, the gospel reordered society in such a way that a whole new alternative society sprung up in a culture in which power struggles were set aside for the joy and the freedom of submitting to Jesus for his sake, to one another joyfully. 
Not only did an alternative society take root, an alternative sexuality was unleashed on the world. Rooted in marriage between a man and a woman in which they were wholly dedicated to one another, where husbands stopped functioning as brutal sovereigns, doing whatever they wanted, but actually understood their calling to sacrificially love and serve their wives. And the gospel unleashed an alternative and radical new social hierarchy so that children are no longer crushed under the harsh demands of parents, but parents are called to patiently and tenderly guide them in some of the most tumultuous, difficult years of their life. Uh, an alternative social hierarchy in which slaves and servants and everyone who found themselves at the bottom of the social hierarchy became recipients of honor, understanding that they had an inheritance, that they were sons and daughters in God's family. And, and, and those who, you know, just assumed that they wielded all the power were reminded that, in fact, they don't. That those in power were reminded that they lived as subjects too, and that they had a responsibility to the Lord. That is the freedom that grows out of one relationship, the relationship with Jesus, which reorders everything for our good and his glory. This is the freedom in space that comes to the one who's able to hear the gospel, to hold on to the gospel, to see that Jesus is honored as Lord, to, to, to delight that he is both humble and exalted, that he is both Lord and servant, that he is the one who is completely and utterly free and yet chose to fully obligate himself to us, having gone to the lowest place for us, for our salvation, and having now ascended to the highest place, seated at the right hand of God, where we are seated with him. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, would you um, awaken us to the beauty of the gospel in fresh ways, and would we... Uh, not merely be those who are just kind of going about our religion as some ho-hum reality, but would we be reoriented by the gospel? Would we love the lordship of Jesus in our life? Would we embrace in fresh ways its kindness, its beauty, its life-giving quality, Lord, and would that run out from us into every relationship? Lord, that what happened in those first three centuries in the church would, would happen now where we would find an enjoyment, where we are willing to endure all kinds of loss because the gospel's better, because Jesus is greater. And Lord, would that be the stuff of good news, that we could be citizens of the kingdom and citizens of Santa Fe and, and say to our neighbors, come and see. Come and enjoy a freedom. Come and know that you don't have to sing for your supper. You don't have to get crushed. You don't have to live along this crappy social hierarchy, which is always demanding more and more of us, where we're all submitting and, and we're submitting in a way that is just taking life from us. Lord, would we offer, would you open doors to us that we might say there's a great and beautiful submission to the Lord Jesus, which doesn't take life from us, but demand, which doesn't take life from us, but delivers on it. And Lord, as we come to this table, there is just no more vivid, potent expression of a radical reorientation of life than what we see here, where every expectation is that we would come and, you know, make new vows and new resolutions and, you know, give more and more and more in the, in the hopes that you would please pay attention to us and give us life. It's the very opposite. 
that we come hungry and thirsty, nothing in our hands we bring, simply to the cross we cling, and that you feed us. What a beautiful picture, Lord. Make us hungry for that kind of life. Feed us with that kind of life and let it bring life to those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.